Our scripture today is found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through chapter 4, verse 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. I was thinking about a story that I read about a wartime encounter. There was a war-torn street. There were bombs going off. There was uh, fire, gunfire. And there was a man who was walking down the street, and he noticed the, another man walking down the street. And the other man who was walking down the street was walking very calmly, just very definitively going to where he was going. And the man who noticed this walked right up to him and put his finger on his chest. And he said, what's the chief end of man? And the guy, without missing a beat, answered, to glorify God and to enjoy him fully forever. And the man who noticed him said, I knew you were a shorter catechism man by the, by the looks of you. Right? So he had, he had a sense in which he knew the gospel. He knew the gospel deeply, and it affected the way that he lived right then in even the worst of circumstances. And so what we're going to talk about today is that how our relationship to God through Jesus changes the way, our, our relationship to the future changes the way that we interact in the present, particularly when we disagree and have difficulties that way. So we're going to look at uh, three brief things. We're going to look at citizenship, we're going to look at agreement in the Lord, and we're going to look at transformation. And I'll try to be brief because I'm, I don't know about you, but I am pretty chilly. So, um, Citizenship, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, there's one commentator who gives us a helpful historical background for understanding this. The, world, uh, the word colony today, what does that bring to mind when we use the word colony or colonize? It brings to mind, for most of us, it brings to mind imperialism, the old days of imperialism, several European countries expanding their influence in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The colonial attitude was patronizing and perhaps sometimes bullying, Right? And it was a looking down on the local people in far-off lands as being inferior and good only to help increase profits for the mother country back home. Now, some good attitudes did uh, reside among the colonists. There were several colonists and several uh, administrators and facilitators of the colonies who did have good motives. They wanted to bring things like health care. They wanted to bring things like technology that would help. It's not hard to understand this. It's a little... You know, to think about the water that Julie mentioned, for example. There are people in the world right now that go without clean water, and there's basic technology that can help so that people don't go thirsty. There are people right now in the world who uh, get diseases uh, that could be easily, easily treated, easily treated with the right technology. And so there were some colonists who were motivated by that, but, uh, you know, the really, the local people often saw, the reality was the local people often saw their land taken by force, they, uh, their own ancient culture scorned and squashed. There are movies about this, right? Kevin Costner dances with wolves. Uh, the modern-day version, Avatar, uh, of the same storyline, basically, if you, if you look at it. And the idea is that there are, there's a, a native culture, and it has riches of its own and glories of its own, and yet there's a colonizing presence to come to use and exploit that and treat that culture as less worth, less worthy 
of, uh, than its own. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. So when we think of the word colony, we think about this letter and what's going on. We have to realize that Philippi was a Roman colony. It's likely that many of the local people in that area of northern Greece saw Rome and the colonial administration just like I described now, where it was an imposition. It was a taking of one's own culture, native culture, and bending it or forcing it to agree with the imposed culture. That it was, um, that it was aimed for taking the wealth and the riches and the resources of the native culture and bringing it to the mother culture in Rome. Now, there were people who were, were uh, looking at it that way, but uh, some background information will help. 42 B.C., it's about 100 years before Paul came to that area, okay? 42, 42 B.C. And Philippi was a setting for one of the great battles in the Roman Civil War that had broken out just after the death of Julius Caesar. It was a scene for one of the major battles, all right? And there were two victorious generals, Antony and Octavian, who would be the future Emperor Augustus. And they had found themselves with a lot of soldiers after the war ended in northern Greece, and they had nothing to do. So, what's going to happen? What do you think they decided? Do they just have the thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers descend back upon Rome? It's actually probably not a great idea. And Roman was, Rome was already overpopulated and uh, underemployed and, and so forth. So, one of the things they did was they gave the soldiers land in Philippi and said, gather here and make this a Roman colony and bring Roman culture and bring Roman rule uh, to this place. And in doing so, you'll have, the, you'll have Caesar's protection. You can appeal to Caesar. Uh, once established, there were other veterans that joined the colony, and Philippi was on the main road which ran west to the narrowest part of the Adriatic Sea. And you could easily sail across to Italy and travel to Rome. Okay? Now, close contact could be maintained with the mother city. Colonists were proud of being Romans, Right? and would do their best to order their civic life so that it matched the way that things were done in Rome. Now, the most recent innovation in Roman culture at that point was worship of Caesar. It was the establishment of the imperial cult. Caesar was called the emperor, and he was to be worshipped as savior and lord. And the word gospel was used to describe that emperor cult. It was the herald of a new reign. Caesar, who you were to give allegiance to, Now, think about all of that background when you read this letter now. It's important to what we read because Paul says, look, we are citizens of heaven. He doesn't say we're waiting until we can go and live in heaven where we belong. And that's interesting and very important for us. If someone in Philippi said we are citizens of Rome, they weren't saying so we're looking forward to going and living living there. No, they were a colony. They identified their home as Philippi. Uh, We moved into the Fairmount neighborhood, and on our block, there are several families that are about the third generation in their home. They're Philadelphians. They live in Fairmount. That's their neighborhood. So they're not saying, we want to go back to Rome or live in Rome. We're saying we're citizens of Rome, right? Being a colony works the other way around. It's not that you go to back to Rome, to the mother city, but you actually colonize the place and live in place and root down in the place that you're colonizing. 
The capital city was overcrowded, again underemployed. The task of the Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece and to expand Roman influence there. The Christian's task, then, is to take the sensibilities, the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, God's Spirit grown in us and born in us and uh, growing in us and being nurtured in us and living out of those things here in our place, in our time, and for them to live out of those things, out of the heavenly uh, way of living, of godly way of living in those times, in those places. And so that's our second, our second point, is just brief, an example of that. He's asking that Yodia and Syntyche come to agreement in the Lord, verse 2. Agreement in the Lord. So these two had worked in the gospel, worked hard in the gospel, and yet they came to a deadlock. And this happens a number of ways, right? We watched over Thanksgiving, one of the things that we do uh, is watch White Christmas. It's a Bing Crosby film, and there's a Rosemary, Rosemary Clooney is one of the main characters. And there's a, there's a sense, what's happened is that Bing and uh, Danny Kaye, I believe, were in World War II together, and they were fighting together, and they had linked up, and they had survived together, and they had a general who was a really worthwhile guy, led the men very uh, admirably and with um, character and with honor, and they were devoted to him. And one of the songs in the movie is, we love him, we love him, we'll follow him wherever he goes, you know. And so it's after the war. Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby's characters are making their way in Broadway, and they're uh, putting on musicals together, and they're doing really well. And through, through the storyline twist, they meet these two young actresses who are uh, up and coming, and they, they join forces together, and they end up in this remote place in Connecticut. It's an inn, and who runs the inn but the general? Only when they encounter him, he's forgotten. All of the great, admirable character that he brought to leading his men in really important battles was forgotten. And he was, could be seen carrying firewood and doing chores and without a modicum of respect that he deserved. And so the storyline is that Bing and uh, Danny Kaye work with the producers they know in New York to connect through television to all of the uh, soldiers who would have served under this general, and they're going to put on a surprise performance for him and show him, we love you, we care for you, you're not forgotten, you're really worthwhile. But what happens? There's a busybody administrator of the place who takes care of the general, and she listens in on phone calls, right? And she only heard part of that story, and what she thought was that Bing and Danny were taking uh, advantage of the general, and going to use his disadvantage and people forgetting about him to boost their own names through marketing, through advertising, hundreds of thousands of dollars in advertising. Well, she was so aghast she hung up the phone, of course, before she heard that they're not going to accept a cent of any advertising. No one's going to get any money from it. It's, it's really a, a salute to the general. It's to do the right thing. Well, by this time, Rosemary Clooney's character and Bing are falling in love, but then the busybody tells Rosemary Clooney's character what's going on from her perspective, and she gets real frustrated, and she just leaves without saying anything. And and there's a good portion of the last third of the movie where uh, it's just this constant misunderstanding. You can look into the stories you're watching and see if they would only talk to each other, if they would only talk to each other. But there's a deadlock, and they're kept separate. And it takes, finally, it takes her seeing on the television uh, Bing saying, nobody's getting a cent for this. Come out and do it for the good of the general. And she, oh, my goodness, I've misunderstood. And she goes and is reconciled with him. 
Christians are not to work like White Christmas and Rosemary Clooney and Bing Crosby. We're not to work. We're to keep short accounts. I have a friend who came to me and said, I'd like to be reconciled with you. I said, okay, let's sit down. Let's do that. And I said, what's this about? And they said, I'm frustrated with your view of counseling. I said, okay, good. Tell me about it. And told me about my view of counseling. And I had never said that was my view, and it wasn't my view. I don't think I had published what my view of counseling was. But uh, he brought it to me. And he kept short accounts. And we are able to just put it, oh, this is a non-issue, right? Rather than let it fester. We need to be like that. Some of you are not holding short accounts with those you're in disagreement with. Some of you are not um, living as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Some of you are not forgiving as Christ, God in Christ has forgiven you. That's not the way the citizenship works. That's not the way colonization works. It's not bringing the values of our kingdom and our God to one another and remembering that in one another we have citizens of the heavenly kingdom that we're dealing with. Are you so bound by your disagreement that you're, you're unwilling to talk, that you're unwilling to pursue, that you're unwilling to be humbled enough to go and say, hey, I, wanna, I really value our friendship. I treasure what we have here. And more than that, I believe that Christ calls us to reconciliation. So tell me what's going on. You know, and, and the, there's a, the Bible is so nuanced in this. There's a place in the gospel that says, hey, if you remember that you have something against somebody, go and work it out, right? And there's a place just following that shortly later that says, oh, if you remember somebody has something against you, go and work it out. Do you see what happens there? Where's the duty to go and work it out? Whose shoulders is it on? It's always on yours. Whether you have something against somebody else or they have something against you, it's always on your shoulders. Why? Because we have a God who reconciled us to himself, though we were enemies. He calls us friends. He calls us friends and he calls us family. So how much more should we be able to do that among one another? He's calling them to it. He's calling us to it. We cannot live just keeping it inside and avoiding confrontation and not talking with one another the way we need to. We need to keep short accounts. We can't be Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney, right, and White Christmas. We need to be heaven, citizens of the heavenly kingdom. So verse 2, agreement in the Lord. Lastly, we'll look at transformation. Verses 20 and 21, and also verse 3, I guess, of the next chapter. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then verse 3, names are written in the book of life. It's heart. Where do we get the resources to live with one another in this way? Where do we get the resources to overlook offenses when we've been hurt? You know, we, when Anne-Marie and I are working with the kids, one of the things we're constantly trying to drill into them is you can overlook it because love, you know, bears a multitude of sins, overlooks a multitude of wrongs, right? You can overlook it. You can work it out. Christians are to be reconciled. So if, uh, 
If you've hit your brother or your brother's hit you, you can try to work it out. You can overlook it. You can try to work it out. But it may be that you can't do it. It may be that you can't do either of those things. And so what you have to do is come and get help, right? We're not very much different than that. But it's hard. Where do we get the strength to do those kinds of things? Where do we get the strength to be humble enough to go and say, hey, I have this against you, or hey, I wonder if you have this against me, and keep the ball in our court. The ball's always in our court. It's right here. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Remember the opening story of the two men walking by each other in wartime? What's the chief end of, chief purpose of people? What's the chief purpose, the primary purpose of human beings? To glorify God and to enjoy him fully forever. Ah, I knew you were a shorter catechism man by the looks of you. There is something that will, there's something about our heavenly hope, the transformation of all things, that will empower us to be able to go into one another's lives in a way that's not like the world that is more like heavenly citizenship. There have, been lots of, um, there have been lots of ways that people have thought about that in the past. There's a guy named uh, Richard Niebuhr, and he talked about various different models, and we can see that working out. Some of them are Christ against culture. We can see that uh, one way for the church to be a heavenly citizen right now, people in the church, is to be against culture. It's not always good, but sometimes it's necessary. One example, simple example, is when the regulation with the homeless, feeding the homeless was out. We felt like that that was against the Christian's rights to go and feed the hungry. It's so wedded with the command the Lord gives us to, uh, or what it means to be saved, that those who are hungry are fed. And so we stood against that in various ways. We stood against that regulation. We were against culture in that way. But there are also, um, Niebuhr pointed out, there's something Christ of culture. And there's a problem there, and there are good things there. The problem is, is that you can be so undistinctly Christian and not care about the gospel message or your heavenly citizenship so much that you just sort of be, you're subsumed under the weight of the cultural influences you have. So that's, that's important. We don't want to do that. But the thing that you need to keep in mind is that all of us have a culture, and every place and every part of the world has a culture, and they rub up against each other. And so there are certain senses in which the gospel comes to transform who you are in your culture and in who you are in and of yourself. Here's an example, you know, thinking of my own culture, the Crosby home, okay? And we have a son who is 11, Ezra, you know him, he's big hair. Like dad without product, he's got big hair. Um, Ezra, since he was young, I've shared this with some of you, Ezra, since he was young, has struggled with when we tell him to do something he doesn't want to do. You know, he's doing something else. He's playing with Legos, and he needs to go and uh, put his dishes into the sink, and he needs to stop playing Legos. Uh, He gets frustrated, and he'll root down, and he gets, "Mm, I don't want to do it, right? And so one of the things we've been working with him on, and as parents we've thought about is, what does it look like... uh, to be, for Ezra to be made who he's meant to be by the gospel in this tendency. In this tendency. And so what we thought about was, okay, let's, let's think about when he's older and he's with some boys and um, they're trying to get him to do something he shouldn't do, and he knows it. 
And he roots down, and he doesn't do it. And he says, that's not right. You see what's happened. In the tr- in, in, Christ comes in, and he takes something of Ezra's culture, right? And he makes it more of what it's meant to be, not less. He's able to show goodness and integrity in that scenario, and we're able to pray towards that and help him to develop towards that out of the strength that we see when he roots down in disobedience. That can be... Christ takes that part of the culture and transforms. So when we say Christ of culture, there are elements of all of our cultures that Christ rubs up against. Necessarily so. And that's important. Christ above culture, Christ... um, in struggle with conflict with culture and Christ transforming culture are some of the other models that Niebuhr talked about. Look, the point isn't to go over Niebuhr. The point is to look with nuance at the, what being a citizen here looks like. Because of the gospel, our relationships need to look different. Because of the gospel, the way that we interact with the city the way that we interact with one another, the way that we interact with our neighbors need to look different. And over time, those differences can transform things. William Wilberforce spent an entire life in Parliament doing little things, parliamentary things, boring things, mundane things that eventually saw the overthrow of the slave trade. Spent his entire life and contrary to the, the movie, he was a little man, and he had real severe sickness, and he wore an iron brace around his neck. And, he, you know, he, he labored to get that done. He labored through those sacred, ordinary moments in parliamentary procedure to get that done. Why? Because Christ had delivered him from slavery, and he was convinced of that. And that Christ comes into culture and makes it more of what it's meant to be, And more than that, in the heavenly kingdom, when Jesus brings about the resurrection and he wipes away every tear and he makes all things new, he's going to bring the glories of every nation in. And they're brought in like a tapestry or a fabric. We were in the museum, the art museum, day after Thanksgiving, and it was fantastic. And we went, even the great hall, there's a great hall with tapestries. And my aunt sort of was taken aback and she said oh my word because she felt the weight of how much work it would have to be to put those massive tapestries together bit by bit color by color thread by thread it's artistry in the same way the Lord is bringing all of our distinctiveness from every place around the world into his kingdom and we are made more distinctively who we're meant to be than without him and than without one another so he's doing that How is he doing it? He's doing it through the resurrection. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The one thing that you have to know is that created order, creation is important to Christians, right? Christians, Jews, Muslims, it's a part of our narrative. It's part of what uh, we believe that the Lord created out of nothing. But he's not leaving it there because the creation, what you may not know, is that it's temporary and provisional. Though it was good, it was temporary and provisional. And it could have transformed. It could have been transformed into a state of permanence had Adam and Eve not fallen. But they did fall. And so we're still temporary and provisional. We're not going back to the garden. 
we're going to be transformed into a new level of creation, a new order of all things. And it'll be a city. It's a new heavens and a new earth, and the nations are brought in. Does it matter that we're going to be raised with resurrection bodies that are permanent and immovable and eternal? It does. Why? I've said this to you before, but one of the things about the gospel that's so miraculous is then the last pictures that we have from John in Revelation. There's the mighty victorious Jesus at the end of all things, and he's reigning, and his people are with him, and he's overthrown evil, and he's overthrown sadness. And what do you see in his hands? You see the marks from the nails that went through. You see the marks. There's continuity between what we do right now and what will happen and what we will enjoy in the future. We have a mighty Savior who went through that for us on our behalf, and we rest in him. And because of him, we can have the courage, we can have the hope to go into each other's lives, remembering where we're from, where we're citizens, and where we're headed. I was saying... uh, to our friends who are going to come in a moment and gather around the Lord's table with us and help us serve. I was saying that Thanksgiving was powerful to me because I saw for, in a different way than I've seen, how powerful friendship is. Because when you're with somebody that is truly a friend to you and that you're friends with and gets you and there's no pretense, you don't have to put on airs and they know your warts and they know, you know, they know your strengths and weaknesses and they love you just the same. And when you're with friends like that, it encourages you. It bolsters you. It gives you stamina that you can move forward. Friends, Jesus has called us friends because of his work. And not only that, the reason he can call us friends, the reason we can depend on it, the reason we can go out into the world living our lives out of that is because on the cross, God turned his face away. The Father turned his face away as though he were not the Son as though he were not friends from all before all creation. He lost everything. He ordered all things for the benefit of you being saved, you being called friend, you being brought into his family. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We're following in his mighty train with great hope, and we can be greatly effective as a result. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we are not at enmity with you, that we no longer have to um, strive in your presence or be cast away from your presence, but that we can come in boldly yet humbly, boldly because our Lord and Savior stood in for us and we are in him, humbly because he had to. And there's nothing distinctive about us that would have ended the war, but there was everything distinctive about Jesus that did. And so we come to you not as enemy combatants. We come to you as uh, members of your family, as your friends, and we come come to and live our lives out in our current context as citizens of your kingdom, bearing forth your kingdom values that are different than the way that the world views things lovingly, compassionately, winsomely, with great hope and with great effectiveness. Lord, be among us as we live out of the hope of our future, but also uh, the way that we handle agreements, that we agree in you.
and that we help others to do the same. Let us go forth as those who have been loved and served by our faithful Savior, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.